the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to The Big Silence Podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go. Mental health is my wealth. The stress upon the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seeking ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Hello, what's up? It's Karina. So glad you're back here at the Big Silence Podcast to hang out. Exciting news. Um, So as you know, it is Mental Health Awareness Month, the entire month of May, and we have the hashtag Calm Heart Quiet Mind Challenge going on. So make sure you use that hashtag, upload what you do for yourself, for your mental health to have a calm heart and a quiet mind. I've been out here in Palm Springs in nature. Y'all know that nature is my medicine. I want to know what else. I mean, if I could put a list down, it's uh, nature, movement, meditation, reading, solo time, Pomeranians, you know. So this weekend, if you're in Austin, Texas, come by the Kendra Scott store between 10 and 2. We are doing an event with the Big Silence. It's a fundraiser from Kendra Scott Gives Back. And you come hang out with the store from 10 to 11. Uh, You need a ticket for the workout. And you can go to thebigsilence.com to find out where to get that ticket or on my Instagram, I'll be posting a lot. And that's a workout with myself and I have friends joining me, Angela, the Ninja Warrior. Um, Amber Valdez is going to be doing a sound bath meditation and Iskra is going to do a motivational talk. So make sure you come by and then we're just hanging out. Afterwards, there's going to be some champagne and we'll be sipping and shopping and chatting. So come on by. All right, today's guest, Kim Shapira. She is a registered dietitian and food therapist. And we really talk about our mental state and food. And it's a really great conversation. Kim's been awesome. We just did a live on Instagram last week. Uh, Such a great conversation. And, you know, food and mental health, there's that correlation. So we dive really deep into that. So enjoy the episode. As always, share this with anyone and I'll see you later. Kim Shapiro, welcome to the Big Silence Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah. So 
you have a new book. This is what you're really hungry for. Coming I up. sure do, you know. And it's such an interesting topic. I get a lot of messages as we speak about mental health and the relationship with food. And also myself as founding a fitness company and nutrition and having a, a, quite the the history of working out and relationship with food. I don't even know where to begin, but I get so many DMs and questions about eating disorders. So I'm going to let you take the lead because I have a lot of questions, but I just, you're the expert in this. So let's talk about it. Oh my gosh. I feel like that was so loaded and like I <laughs> unloaded at the same time. I don't even know where to begin, but let me, I guess, let me explain a little bit about this book. So I'm a registered dietitian and I've been in practice for 25 years. I have a very full practice and I used to put everyone on diets. Mm. That's what you need to know. Is the word diet like a no-no now or? I think diet should be screamed from rooftops. I feel like it is actually what my chapter one is about. The chapter one is about diet and the word fat because they're so triggering and I want to untrigger people. I want it to be a normal thing. The definition of diet actually is not restriction, it's lifestyle. And so if we can just look at it as this is how I live rather than this is what I don't get to eat. But why do you think back in the day of whenever, when did diet become a trigger word? Oh, God, that's a very good question. It wasn't for me. And I think it's um, a personal trigger. I think it's very individualized based on whatever our parents were doing or our peers were doing. I mean, as a child, we spend 60 hours a week with our peers. And so whatever they're doing is far more important than, you know, what we think or what's happening at home. But we can't really discount what's happening at home. To me, like, again, growing up, like I was a sick kid. I was in, I was in the hospital when I was 12 and had multiple reconstructive surgeries in 1986. And so diet for me was more about like, how can I make my body healthy here? Like, how do I not get sick in the future? It was, so it wasn't a triggering word for me in the same sense. Whereas going to the doctor was really, really scary for me. Yeah, let's go back there. So you're 12 years old and you get a diagnosis and you have to go through surgery and you're 12 and you're shy, vulnerable, quiet, like scared. very invasive. So let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, what can we talk about? It was, I was one of eight people to ever been born with this defect. It was scary and painful. And I had a m multiple reconstructive surgeries in my stomach area and it it really had nothing to do with my diet. So I picked a profession where I knew I could make people healthy. And if you even recognize like how I said that, I wanted to pick a profession I could make people healthy. Like I had so much to learn. It's not my responsibility to make people healthy. I'm not even in control if people are healthy. Like I failed so many times in the beginning of my career based on like what my goals were. But my intention was always to be healthy. And how can I be my healthiest self and not feel sick at all? And I found that food made me feel good or bad. And the truth is, is I was interning. I wanted to be in a health profession and I was interning and with a podiatrist 
And he suggested I become a dietitian because food can make people healthy or sick. And that was like the link for me. That was it. And so I just went straight into graduate school and learned all I could. Really was not super fascinated by food. I hated my cooking classes that I had to take and my food science classes. I was always interested in why people were so afraid of fat. Okay. Backtracking a little. You having these surgeries as a 12, 13-year-old and going through that and the mental health aspect of it, how are you feeling? I mean, that's a lot for a 13-year-old to take on. Yeah. Again, it was 1986. So we had a lot of limitations as far as like how I should have been properly taking care of myself. My mom was a little bit witchy back then. She still is kind of, which I am super grateful for. Um, and when you say witchy, what do you, what do you mean witchy? I think she was open-minded to quantum physics and, you know, um, the power of my mind. I will tell you a couple of things happened to me. I developed a very fierce shopping addiction. Because every Wednesday I would go to the doctor and my mom would say to me, don't cry. We'll go shopping after this appointment. And I would lay in my checkups dreaming of what I was going to buy. And that is really why I wrote this book and how I changed my career. But it came to a little bit later. And the second thing that happened to me is books on tape had just become a thing. And I'm in Los Angeles. My dad was a is a Hollywood agent, so deeply connected to whatever was happening with books on tape. And the this powerful man named Norman Cousins was recording a book on tape, and he was sent to me as a gift to tell me his story. And he cured himself of an incurable disease by laughing. And so when I think about like my mental health and my well-being, I had a mom who, you know, told me that I was stronger than I thought I was. And I had this man who taught me that laughter could help me fight pain and that my mind was way more powerful than I was even tapping into. And in high school, I ended up with Epstein-Barr, which is a sign that I was not doing well. Can you explain Epstein-Barr for those listening? We've had some conversations about it before on the pod, but yeah. Yeah, Epstein-Barr is a virus that basically feels like mono or chronic fatigue all the time. And it means that your immune function is low and, and you're susceptible to other illnesses. And it really is, I think, linked to depression. And so you can see I wasn't doing so great in high school and yet still was trying to feel better and not really, I didn't have help. My mom wasn't didn't really say like, these are the foods that are going to make you feel better. I didn't have that kind of help. And so I think I suffered a little bit for a long time because of the Epstein-Barr viral load that I had, which can go in and out of um, being active. And so I, I was always the kind of person, even if I wasn't doing well, I was still fully functioning, pushing myself through whatever I was feeling. I think that's kind of what my mom had taught me when I was younger, which I wouldn't say is necessarily the healthiest thing. Let me be honest. It's okay, mom. 
Yeah. We, we all we all have some work to do, you know, but she again, limitations, 1986, she did the best she could. And how scary for her to have a 12-year-old in and out of the hospital. My God. Absolutely. So transitioning into your career, because I want to get into the science behind like emotional eating and just foods. So where do you progress from here? So I went to grad school. I opened a private practice immediately started putting people on diets, just as I had learned in graduate school. My first client was a therapist, and she lost 30 pounds on the diet that I put her on. And I thought, oh, my God, I am so good at my job. I like am a rock star. And then she said to me, you know, I'm going to gain the weight back. And I said, why would you do that? And she said, well, my husband wants to have sex all the time, and I was molested as a child. Oh, wow. Okay. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I actually don't know what I'm doing. I was 27, and even though I could tell you how to prevent diabetes and keep your blood pressure at bay and blood sugars, I knew nothing about the actual people living inside of their bodies. I had to change focus to why in the world are people eating when they're very uncomfortable in their own bodies or they're even allowing themselves to eat foods that are then making them sick, especially when we know kale is healthy. And as I started thinking about this, I started recognizing they eat the way that I shop for every single emotion. All signs point to the mall for me. And that was what was happening with food. And so as I started helping myself, I started applying those kind of rules, which I would call value systems, non-negotiable values to my clients. And that is basically what I now call the Kim Shapira method. It's based on six roles. And that is what my book is about. Um, And that is when I changed probably about five years into my practice, putting people on diets to teaching them about how to have a normal relationship with food. And as a side effect of that, they would end up at their leanest weight based on what their body needs to be. I want to go back to that relationship of you get to go shopping. I remember growing up and my mom would be like, well, if you go to summer camp, because I hated it, you get to have french fries after. How does that mess with you Like as you're getting older? Like the reward is food. The reward is shopping. Each person, each one of us develops between three and five triggers that will cause us to, um, you know, become vulnerable and go towards whatever coping mechanism we lean towards. And we develop these coping mechanisms in the first six years of our life. And then we work for the rest of our life and mastering them. When we go through something very traumatic or when we, um, yeah, basically when we go through something traumatic, like 9-11, me getting sick at 12, COVID, we then develop new triggers and each one of us will be triggered by it, but our stories will look different. So maybe some people couldn't wait to get out of the house. Maybe some people never wanted to leave the house. Everybody's story will play out differently. And so for me, when you think about rewarding somebody with French fries for good behavior, it's again, going back and reparenting to say like, can I do this? And no, the French fries will be there later when I'm hungry, right? I mean, this is the kind of conversation I have all day long about this, especially when I link it to shopping. Like everything for me was, yeah, I definitely need that. Yeah. 
rationalizing bad ideas. So when I got out of the hospital after one of my surgeries, one of my best friend's mother says to me, you gained weight, you look great. It didn't land on me in a sticky way. What I heard was, I'm healthy. If she had said that to anyone else that was triggered by their weight, it would have landed really incorrectly and hurt them. But for me, all I heard was, I'm getting healthy. Our rational mind, here, let's just play at this. Um, answer this from your rational mind, okay? okay? Food is? Nourishment. Okay. Now from your irrational mind, food is? Yummy. It's also comfort. It's also the enemy. It's also entertainment. It's also your friend when you need one. So if we can distinguish between our rational and our irrational mind, then we can bring our mind back to rational. So what happens when we are just walking through life rational, we think food is fuel. We're really good at that. First thing in the morning, we might think food is fuel. And then all of a sudden, the perfect storm hits and our trigger just kind of like snaps our mind. And suddenly we think, oh, food is comfort. I would feel better if I ate this. But really, the bottom line is any single time that you think that food is a good idea, it's an alarm going off that is saying, I'm not okay. And it's important for you then to scan your body and say, why am I not okay? Is it because I'm hungry? Is it because I'm stressed? Is it because I'm tired? Why am I having this thought? I mean, our mind produces 60,000 thoughts a day in response to whatever you see, smell, feel, or hear, and is constantly wanting you to survive in the most pleasurable way. It's interesting, too, because I think back, because I'm um, second generation here in the U.S., and my, my grandmother immigrated here while pregnant with my dad. And even growing up, like when we would have family dinners, it was like, finish your plate. Okay, get another plate. And we're talking like concentration camps in, in the Ukraine and Germany with my family. And so I think my dad instilled that like, you eat, you eat, you eat. And so is that something that would be related to something where like, you, it's a survival mechanism? I mean, we know based on studies that that is passed down, right? We do inherit that. But that's your dad's personal journey. And so it's very important for you to see like where where the line is and what you want to take on and what you don't want to take on. And there has to be some work there. And the work, like even when you hear the word work or hard, the thing is, is that we operate 47% the same way we operated yesterday. We are sleepwalking through most of our choices. And so just being alert and intentional is the work. Either way, I mean, Buddha says life is suffering. And so you're either going to suffer and eat or suffer and not eat. But this way we get to choose our suffering, right? And it's not really suffering. Like I'm going to put it into quotes, the suffering. But the reality is, is being alert to say, oh, that's so funny that I'm inheriting this thought. And what happens with narrow-mindedness is that we just really can't see other things. But as soon as we're aware that that thought is probably picked up or or passed down from my dad, then we can find gratitude. I'm sorry that my dad had to suffer like that. And I'm so grateful that he's not now. And I'm not in a place where I have to suffer, you know, just kind of expanding the gratitude. All right. So the back to the six rules. Let's walk through that. Okay. okay. So the first rule, um, and the reason I'm hesitating, oh, of course, my gardeners are here. That's perfect. See, my mind is like, oh, and now can you hear the dog? See, this is all normal. You guys, everyone listening, when your mind is like, oh, my gosh, there's that noise. There's that fan. There's that dog barking. I've got people outside. It's okay. 
we're yeah, here. Yeah, and my dog's going to go crazy, so I apologize. What happens is, so my mind just kind of jumped. And so what's really important is to recognize when your mind jumps. And that's actually what mindfulness is, is recognizing that my mind is no longer here. And now I have the ability to bring it back into my body. And so these rules really only work when your mind is in your body. So one of my favorite exercises is to ask yourself, where is my body? And then to answer right here. And then you say, where is my mind? And you actually have to take a second, which I'm watching you doing it, and you actually looked up and you went to find your mind. Actually, where where is your mind? Is it here? It is. It is. Okay. So you might have to say to yourself, where is my body? Where is my mind? Three times until your mind actually lands in your body. But you can actually track it, trace it, and see if it's here or not here. And so many people do like walk-bys or fishing trips into the kitchen when their mind is somewhere else. And so before we even start the rules, find your mind. Be in your body. Be right here now. How does one do that? Because you asked me and I'm like looking around. I'm like, obviously, my mind's here. My body's here. Okay. So repeat after me. Okay. Well, here's a quick here's a quick way to do it. What time zone is your body in? Central time. You mean like, what, like yeah, actual? And what, what time zone is your mind in? Here. Perfect. Okay. Or you can say, where is my body? Here. Right. Where is my mind? Yeah. You. I just sometimes Together. like pat them. I'm like, I'm right here. I'm, I'm here. here. I'm here. I'm present. Yeah. I'm right here. Okay. And then now where is your mind? Here. I'm, here. I'm, I feel present. Yeah. And so, like I said, sometimes it might take you 10 times to find your mind or to bring it back. But it is amazing to watch your mind go from the thought bubble you were in to like being in, you know, out there in the world to coming back into your body. And so every single time you have a thought, food is a good idea. It's an alarm going off. Find your mind, make sure it's in your body and scan your body to see if it's actually food you need or a hug or a phone call or just to let this moment pass. And so then you can go into the rules and the first rule. And by the way, like anytime you have a reaction, like I can't, I let's like dig deep. Okay. 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 Just like the word diet. I'm on on in the spotlight right now. Okay. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The first rule is to eat when you're physically hungry. So that means in your stomach, not in your chest, not in your mind, not in your hands, but actually physically in your stomach. Our bodies give us signals all day long. I have to pee. I have to sleep. I need water. I'm hungry. We just have to make sure that that signal is coming from the right place. Okay? So the first rule has got three parts. You eat when you're hungry. You take your normal portion and you cut it in half. And you wait 15 minutes to see if you need more food. But let's slow it down. You eat only when you're hungry. You take your normal portion and you cut it in half. You eat that first half slowly, mindfully, you know, gratefully, and you let 15 minutes pass from the first bite. And then you scan your body again and figure out if you need more food. Studies prove that if we're starving and we eat a piece of bread and we wait 10 minutes for our food to show up, we're no longer hungry. And so generally, half should be enough if you trust that there will be more food. If you're fear-based or restricting, there's not going to be that trust and it's going to feel very, very scary. 
that's what I was saying with my my grandparents immigrating here where they had to eat and then my dad was trained to eat because they had scarcity in camps and running through the wood like trying to get to the uh, to America like there's that generational idea and brain like passed down it's definitely if it is passed down like do you feel like eating half sounds scary to you no at this point in my life i i'm good but now i eat a lot less as a kid i was getting at thanksgiving dinner it was like another plate and i would get so full yeah so full and now i'm just like oh i'll have a few bites and people are like are you gonna finish that i'm like no so you know yeah so you feel safe and you trust and like the reality is um i am a registered dietitian and so again health is like my goal and to be healthy it's really about blood sugar control and having good blood sugar control is the link to longevity and actually reducing your risk of almost every disease by 30 percent so with that being said i hope that you will be eating between three and five times every single day to maintain your blood sugar so if you even eat one meal you're going to eat another one in two and a half or three hours Right. If you're going five hours, that's too long. And that probably means that you ate more than you needed. Yeah. With Toner Up, we have a nutrition plan. It is three to five meals per day every few hours. And that's just how, like, if you listen to your body, I know when I'm hungry. I know what I'm eating out of. Just like, give me something. (laughs) Yeah. Or I know when I'm thirsty and I'm like, you should drink water. Yeah. Yes. Good. I mean, at least you're listening to your body. It's great. But your mind has to be in it for you to listen. Rule number two is to eat what you love and to make sure it loves you back. Mm, I love cheese. And it doesn't. Does it love you? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of the word healthy because um, I think it's a label that causes people to rationalize bad ideas. Like somebody could eat a bowl of strawberries when they're not hungry because it's healthy. But if they're not hungry, that bowl of strawberries looks exactly like a bowl of ice cream. Their body's going to take it and do the exact same thing and store it as fat. So again, everything goes back to rule number one, eat when you're hungry, start with half, wait 15 minutes, see if you need more. And then this cheese thing. So we stay in relationships that are kind of can be toxic. And I think the reason why people fail is because one, they they already kind of know what they need to do. They're just not doing it. And so the cheese situation, if it's not loving you back, this would mean you're getting headaches. This would mean your eyes are tearing, your nose is running, you are clearing your throat, you are nauseous, burping, getting bloated. You are having stomach noises, sour stomach, airy gas, smelly gas. You could have eczema or psoriasis and joint pain. I have psoriasis. Look, I have some like right now. And yeah, that is probably related to food. And what it's doing is it's causing an inflammatory response in your gut. That's what we want to protect. So it would be interesting to see, like, I love a food sensitivity test. It'd be interesting to see if like cheese or certain cheeses are on your list and if that's what's causing, you know, any of these problems. 
Yeah, I definitely need to do a food sensitivity test. I'm down for that because I definitely have it. And as I've gotten older, like I know I'm allergic to pepper. Is that a thing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Pepper and peppers. So it could be black pepper. It could be red peppers. It could be spicy peppers. That's a bummer. What happens to you? So I used to love spice. Like give me all the hot sauce, the habanero, the everything. And then in the past couple of years, it's like when I have spice or black pepper, and my sister is allergic to black pepper too, it gets like phlegmy, like a, like, and I have to spit, like, it's like this weird phlegm. I was like, wow, that never happened before. Before, Yeah. You, so you definitely, in order to heal the lining of your gut, you want to add like a good probiotic or flaxseed oil or chia seed and whole grains and B vitamins fruits and vegetables. I would do a food sensitivity test because then you'll know exactly what foods love you back. Yeah. It definitely, like, again, as it was the past few years, like my, I can tell my food sensitivities versus being younger and just allergies all around from like bugs and also moving to Texas and allergies and everything, yeah. like everything is like shifted. Yeah, I believe it. So allergic is actually um, when your throat closes, your lips swell, anaphylactic shock, or hives. Sensitivity are reversible and only temporary. So you just need to kind of like heal whatever is causing it by removing it for a little while, and then you can bring it back. So thankfully, I mean, I don't think it's an allergy. I think it is a sensitivity. Yeah, most likely sensitivity because I, from moving here in Texas, so I do have an allergy to bugs here where I have an EpiPen and I've... Oh, so maybe it could be allergy. But did you ever have an allergy test to see if you were allergic to foods? No. I'm going to send you that link. Okay. So you know, you're going to have to get back to us on that one. Yes, I will. (laughs) Okay. Rule number three is to eat without distractions. And that means um, be mindful, Be be in your body and turn off the TV, turn off your phone because so many people are think they're hungry, but really they're bored and they're using their phone and then they don't want to get off their phone. So they're using the food to kind of like make the, whatever they're doing last a little bit longer. Um, and they're just not paying attention to what their body actually needs. So distractions come in the form of emotions. They come in actually just food being in front of you. And so I would just be aware of, are you hungry when you're eating? Be hungry when you eat and start with half. That's like a fail safe to make sure that you're not going to overeat. Rule number four is to get 10,000 steps every single day. Really, the goal is 7,000 to prevent sudden death by 50%. What I have come to believe is that we need to be more active than not. And so 10,000 is my the number that I always feel is the magic number. How do you feel about that? What's your thought on this, Debs? I agree. I try to always get 10,000. And I agree with you. You said the word sudden death. That was shocking. I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but no, Sorry. I mean, is that that's the case. We need to move our bodies more. We need to move. Yeah. Um, I had a phase where I was tracking my steps and made sure I was getting 10,000. But then during 2020 to 2021 and a half, I was not moving at all. And that's also when I was gaining weight. But then I noticed I was traveling more. I was working more after this phase and I was doing 10,000 steps a day just naturally. And I think you do that, like, you know, you can hold your phone, you can put a, a ring on that tracks everything or a watch uh, and track that. But I, I definitely agree that 
we, if you don't track it, you realize how sedentary you can be. So even if I'm on calls all day, I'll walk up and down the block. Like yeah. anything, it, you know, you don't have to go for a five mile walk every morning, but just make sure that you're staying active. Yeah. I sit for seven hours a day, probably. And so I try and get at least 5,000 steps before I sit for the day and then try and finish by the end of the day. But what I will tell you is that if some days that I hit 9,000, I try not to do it two days in a row. I am not ashamed. There's no persecution. It's not a big deal. There are just some days when I'm tired and it doesn't work out and it's totally okay and you just move right on. But what the steps are doing is they're rebalancing your circadian rhythm. They're helping with digestion, your hormone balance, and your mood. And they also help you maintain your weight. So they're super important for many, many reasons. Yeah. All right. So everyone out there, seven to ten. Just move your body. Get up. Move. Yeah. How about 500 more than yesterday and just keep climbing? And I think that it would actually become your most favorite part of your day if you gave into it. Yeah. I always feel better when I'm moving more and getting my steps in. And I was on vacation in Hawaii recently and my app actually said, what are you doing different? You have way more steps than usual. I was like, oh, wow, I need to definitely be moving more. My app is getting like very interested in what I'm doing differently. That's so funny. That's that's awesome. Um, Okay. Rule number five is eat cups of water every single day. So water is our natural way to cleanse our body. It works through every single organ. You know, we're surrounded by water. Our bodies are 60% water. Our cells are 43% water. We have a hundred trillion cells. We need water every single day. If we don't have enough water, our body is so efficient that it will start, you know, helping detox in certain ways, but not as efficiently as it could if it had water. But our liver actually starts detoxing for our kidneys and our liver doesn't metabolize fat at that point. So if you are dehydrated and you're not drinking water, you will notice that your triglycerides go up, your cholesterol will go up, and your body fat will go up. Drink water. That's the secret sauce. Drink, drink, drink. Yeah. And I know that's hard because a lot of us just get going through the day and you're like, oh my gosh, I I'm not drinking water. So I started actually in my journal, like tracking my water. I know there's apps for that too. I'm like very old school. I'll be like, okay, eight glasses a day. So track it, track it, track it. And it affects your mental health if you're not being hydrated. It affects everything. Everything. Um, Every cell. Yeah. So just once you, like you think you're getting enough water, but then once you start tracking it, you're like, wow, I'm not. And so then you realize how much more you need to drink. So I would just suggest tracking it. Yeah, 1% dehydration actually feels like the flu. And 1% dehydration is two cups. We need water. Lots and lots of water. We're losing it. We're just talking right now. I know. I do podcasts and I'm like, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> it's just talking. You're, it, it takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And, and our full body's made of water. So yeah. Yeah, it's much better for you to drink water. And the last rule is seven hours of sleep. And this rule became a rule during COVID, like really early on in 2020, when all of a sudden my clients were not able to sleep anymore. It it had always been a conversation, but nothing like COVID had ever kind of affected their sleep. And there was so much anxiety. And if we don't sleep, we actually can't lose weight and we can't maintain our weight. And that cortisol actually wreaks havoc on so much 
actually, if we're one hour sleep deprived, it's actually like being intoxicated. Wow. How so? What's the scientific study behind so that? So if we end up, we just end up making poor choices as far as like decision making and all things, driving, food choices, and more, you're more prone to have inflammation. And when we have higher inflammation, we have low motivation. I can see that when there's bad nights of sleep. And especially with COVID, I think everyone's yeah. having bad nights of sleep and like living in this fear state, so much uncertainty, gaining weight, not only because you're sitting at home and you're like, this second pizza sounds amazing, um, yeah. just everything. But yeah, the sleep deprivation, I mean, I can definitely tell if I wake up an hour too early, I'm like, I had a great night of sleep, but I wake up at four instead of five. And then I'm like, am I so tired? It's like that one hour. Yeah. It's like if you're going from Los Angeles to New York and that time change causes a little bit of jet lag, that one hour is going to cause jet lag. You know, if you lost an hour of sleep and the thing is people try to eat chocolate or have coffee to make up for it. And the reality is they kind of just need to accept, okay, I'm a little tired today and it's actually going to take me three days to recover and there's nothing I can do about it. It's just like jet lag. Okay. I always feel bad when I'm like, oh, I had a very social week and I was up till midnight for two nights in a row because I had friends in town, South by Southwest, or there's this conference or whatever. And I'm like, I'm exhausted for three days. Yeah. And you will be. And just accept it. Don't try and do anything about it. Okay. That's like, what's wrong? <laughs> yeah. I know. It's true. It's so weird. But also people don't even think about it as jet lag. And we're fully accepting of jet lag. Okay. Now I, I, I beat myself up over that probably a lot. I'm like, my don't. <laughs> the, you know, the single most important thing with sleep is that sleep is a habit. And so we, tr we really do need to try and go to sleep at the same time every night and wake up at the same time. So even if you miss an hour of sleep, still wake up at the same time that you usually wake up and do not hit the snooze button. If you hit the snooze button, then you're kind of like falling back into another sleep cycle, and that makes you overtired. We want to prevent that. Yeah. And what about tips for falling asleep? Well, it depends. I mean, there's so many sleep issues, falling asleep or being able to stay asleep. If you take melatonin, I, I don't usually recommend melatonin as a supplement because our body produces it. And when you take it, it's, you're basically telling your brain not to make it anymore. But in general, melatonin gets released around 9 p.m., hopefully. And pretty soon thereafter, you're starting to feel drowsy. That's when you should go to sleep when you feel drowsy. If you miss that window, you're now overtired and you're going to have a hard time falling asleep. I used to take melatonin every night for probably eight years. But now I don't. And I realize I actually can fall asleep. I think I became dependent on, I'm like, I got to take melatonin at night. And then during COVID and all that, it didn't matter if I took melatonin or didn't. I was always up at 3 a.m. And I found, what is this? Like, everyone I talked to, like, yep, up between 3 and 4. Yeah, 3.33 is actually the most common wake time and death time. Interesting, right? Our bodies are based on circadian rhythms, and that's our sleep and wake. And there's kind of like a master clock that is happening inside our body. And we, we talked briefly about our body gives us signals all the time. And so 
when we are stressed, our body recognizes it in less than 10 seconds and it hits the hippocampus, the pituitary, and then the adrenal glands. And the adrenal glands is where our cortisol is made. And so we really need to make sure that we're not stressed when we go to sleep and we want to figure out how to support our adrenal glands and stress throughout the entire day, which is where meditation and mindfulness and walking comes in. When you wake up in the morning, it's really important to do like a five-minute powerful little workout to tell your body this is the time that we wake up. Something else you can do is get your eyeballs into the sunshine, not actually look into the sun, but get the whites of your eyes outside so that way they could recognize, oh, this is the time I'm supposed to wake up so we can reset that circadian rhythm. If you're stressed, you really do not want to be doing a a HIIT workout or like a heavy-duty workout because we want to figure out how we can be more restorative. So if you're having trouble and you're waking up at three, I would recommend Pilates and yoga and low-impact walks until your sleep schedule is back to normal. You really want to take care of your adrenals. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, me personally, I haven't had that 3 a.m. wake up anytime recently. And you know what I do? I go to bed, no melatonin anymore, sometimes like some CBD or ashwagandha or something. But um, I listen to the Calm app. Matthew McConaughey, he will put you to sleep within five minutes. It's great. Yeah. And the fact that you're staying asleep, these are all wins. I know. No, Yeah, because it was so bad for so long. But even you know, I always check in with Bobby, my husband, in the morning. I'm like, how'd you sleep? And like, I'm like, wow, why am I sleeping so good? I don't know. Um, Great. Good. Those are yeah. good things. Yeah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> We're not going to rock the boat. Yes, you. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> Okay, so I know we're going to wrap this up. We're going to do a live soon, and we're going to hang out on Instagram and everywhere else. Any final things you want to shout out? We're going to put everywhere you can, anyone can find you. We'll be in the show notes, but uh, shout out here. You can find me on Instagram at Kim Shapiro Method. My website is Kim Shapiro Method. My TikTok is Kim Shapiro Method. Everything is Kim Shapiro Method. So come find me, say hi, and... um, Yeah, just want to know if I was able to help you at all. And I can't wait for our live. I have so many questions for you. I have lots more too. I just, I love like, sometimes I use these podcasts and like, help me. (laughs) Yes. So many experts on here. I'm like, tell me. That's what what I'm going to do when I bring you onto my live. Oh no. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in. 
to be who you already are. The big silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The big silence.